this is relatively prime, Black and Math Week in the mathematical domain. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Anjali. And I'm Noelle Sawyer. We're here as a part of Black and Math Week to talk to some Black math educators. I'm actually an assistant professor of math at Southwestern University in Georgetown, Texas. So I myself, am a math educator. I'm from the Bahamas and I've also got a few teachers in my family line there. So education's got a special place in my heart. And again, I'm Michael Underly and I'm a mathematician, educator and STEM edutainment producer. I originally hail from Atlanta, Georgia, so Seattle, Washington, but now I'm in Ann Arbor working on my PhD in math education. I also have a lot of educators in my family, and I always like to make it be known that I'm an educator before a mathematician. I talked to Bria Ratliff for this podcast, and I asked her how she introduces herself to strangers. If you're sitting next to a stranger uh, in the before times, right, when we did that, and someone, <laughs> and someone asked you, like, what do you do? How do you answer them? Um, generally, I say that I'm a mathematics educator. And can we go back for a minute? Because the before times and the Hunger Games reference just really gives me life right now. <laughs> but um, <laughs> that, that pretty much is mathematics or STEM educator, I think is probably the best collective term for all the things that I do and I'm involved with. I have been an administrator and a coach. I'm currently delving deeper into research and have been a research coordinator and whatnot for a while. And I have my own business also, or I'm consulting on mathematics and STEM. But at the heart of what I do, I am a mathematics educator. Bria is in the math education doctoral program at Auburn University right now. She's also the founder of Me to the Power of Three, which specializes in curriculum development and designing educational programs. They've done work for the Dallas Cowboys Stadium. And she's a past president of the Benjamin Banneker Association. And I took the time to talk to Jose Wilson. And I also asked him, because he lives in New York City, if he's ever on the train or walking down the street, how does he introduce himself to strangers? Usually I tell them my name is Jose Wilson. I've been, uh, before this year, I've, I was a math teacher for the better part of 15 years. In addition, I am also the executive director of EduColor, an organization dedicated to race, class, and, and education, but also as a proud father, husband, and any number of other roles that I take on on a daily basis. And Noel, let me tell you, Jose is a dope math educator. So he's also the founder and executive director of EduColor, and he's currently pursuing a PhD at Teachers College at Columbia University in sociology and education. But before he was doing his PhD, I thought he was already a doctor because we met a couple of years ago at the SIME conference at MSRI. So SIME is the Conference in Mathematics Education, and MSRI is the Mathematical Sciences Research Institute. And for anyone who's listening, I'll say this again at the end, please follow Jose on Twitter. You will be enlightened every single moment. Even though Bria and Jose both have these really cool jobs and backgrounds, I was kind of curious. What were you curious about? Whether or not people still make the statement that all math people are tired of hearing. Do people still respond and say, oh, I hate math? Like, <sighs> <laughs> I'm sure you hear that all of the time. It's, it's still such a pervasive thought across um, society. So I think we really have to do better about the messaging with that. Admittedly, though, there is, there is some elitism that does come with saying that you are a math person. And I think we'd be lying 
act if we didn't recognize that. But at the same time, if we're wanting more people to come into the mathematics space, then we have to really find ways to help them understand there is really no such thing as a math person. That's, that is false. You know, I've always been in solidarity with folks who hate math. Like, even though I know I personally have done well, well, I can only say that up until undergrad, but for the most part, I've done well in math. It's really reasonable to know why people have hard feelings around it. You know, I think about a lot of the violence that can happen in the math classroom, especially, especially for Black students in America. You know, their bodies are often looked at in similar ways that we see out on the streets when we think about police reform and police brutality that's happening to Black people. So when we talk about policing Black bodies in the classroom, like, are we also talking about the actual police here? In some instances, we are. And if you were to do a quick YouTube search, which I honestly hate to put this out here to even have to put anyone to witness this, but you can find several videos where there are police officers throwing Black students to the ground in a math classroom. In a math classroom. Why are the police even there in the first place in these Black communities? And not even always in Black communities, you know? And we see that happening, but there's also things happening in the way that we're teaching math education. That's very behavioral and policing the way that Black students show up and do mathematics in the classroom. There's a study that I've read before in my own research that showed that second grade teachers were significantly more likely to judge their Black female students' math abilities solely on their behavior. Second grade, Noel. Wow. They said these students were getting up, moving or whatever, and they're not answering their questions all the time. What about second graders who are always running around, have to use the bathroom every 10 minutes? They were being policed way more in that way, just on their knowledge. So me and Jose talked about this in relation uh, to his work that he does with EduColor. In the service of Black children, I think that's pretty much where we center so much of our work because we work directly with them. And specifically, talking about how anti-Blackness shows up even amongst people of color generally, even amongst Black folks, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that, for example, our pedagogies have to be super regimented and make sure everybody like sits in rows and aisles to address their kids, make sure that they like follow whatever that that like a champion nonsense is. And I know the name of it. I just rather not validate it. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> I think I think it's just so fascinating because like so many of the schools that educators of color are being pushed towards now are some of the same schools that their business model is based off segregation. It's mm-hmm. very much like we will serve your children. We will give them resources through our hedge fund managers. But then in turn, you have to sacrifice their liberties. Mm-hmm. You have to sacrifice the idea that they deserve to ha- be able to be in control of their hands and control of their eyes mm-hmm. and control of their own voices. Like they have to sacrifice those levels of control. And it's not to say that public schools don't, often have similar situations, but it is to say that the things that you can get away with when it's not as accountable to the public, (laughs) you're able then to push down Black kids because you know that the general public doesn't really care that much about Black kids' humanity as much as they care about pretending like they've solved some sort of gap. And honestly, how could they have solved anything when here we are during COVID, and surprise, all of these problems are even worse now. And Bria also had something to say about that. There are children every day who are just getting further and further behind academically because COVID has exacerbated this opportunity gap that we've had 
for a very, very long time. And disproportionately, it is affecting Black and brown children. It's affecting children who are in poorer communities. But the thing is, we, we, we knew that. Mm-hmm. And if we, the frustrating thing is that we, many of us have been trying to tell people that and talk about how we could address these issues well before we got here. And we're still here. Um, but, oh. I, I found that oftentimes people who don't actually want to help think that by acknowledging an issue exists, like they have done their part. <laughs> <laughs> Right. right. Like, hey, yes, you know what? I do agree. I see that there are these problems. And then they just want to move on in the meeting. <laughs> it's like, oh, that did nothing for me. But which <laughs> add more salt to this wound that I oh yeah. Hmm. You know, there's already so many barriers in place for black students as it is. And even from my own experience as a mathematician and as a Black woman for all the 26 years I've been alive, it's constantly feeling like to get all the things I want in life, I'm having to work twice as hard for what a lot of white folks are getting or have. Bria actually mentioned this as well. And Michael, you're a grad student. I'm just out of grad school. She mentioned that as a grad student, she always felt like she had to put her best foot forward all the time. I also felt this pressure to be... Benjamin Banneker Association, me to the power of three, Bria Ratliff all the time mm-hmm. and, and not make mistakes. And, and yeah, so I, I did, I, I did feel that way. So I, the other major thing for me, I am a, I'm a Christian and I'm a believer. And so uh, my faith is a, the bedrock of all of these things for me. And so having to, to lean on my faith in a new way was, was first, I think the most important thing being able to to say out loud that this is what I'm experiencing, what I'm feeling, and that it's real mm-hmm. was the second. Being able to reach out to others for the support that I needed is helping me because we're we're still working through this. Yeah, uh, hmm. a word. I so feel where she's coming from. It's almost like there's this thin line between the goals that I may want in this world as a black female mathematician and having to be a perfectionist in which one of those are really tiring all the time. I would even say both of those are really tiring all the time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I agree. <laughs> Bria actually pointed out something that's amazing. Her advisor is actually a black woman. And so that gives her the space to feel vulnerable while she's in grad school. So shout out to Dr. Strachan's. Before even being in this grad school space, I think just being a black woman, a successful black woman, there's there's so much armor that you have to put on to be successful in a space. And this is one of the first times in a long time where I have the opportunity to kind of like take my armor off and it feels it feels foreign. I don't take it off for everybody. <laughs> but it feels foreign to have someone say that this space right now is a space where it's about you. This is your time to contribute to that, to learn literature, to contribute to it, to learn how to be a, a mathematics education researcher. And I've got your back. You know, something very relevant. So this past week, I had a meeting with one of my mentees, Olivia, 
and she's a math major over at Western Washington University. So I, she had this assignment that I gave her to read through one of the articles by Dr. Nicole Joseph, real dope scholar out at Vanderbilt, does work on Black Girlwood. But Olivia had read her article entitled Black Women's and Girls' Persistence in the P20 Mathematics Pipeline, Two Decades of Children, Youth, and Adult Education Research. So as Olivia was reading this article, she found this perfect quote out of it, which is very relevant to what Bria was saying. It read, Black women at the graduate level benefit from the mentorship of Black women faculty who often provide instrumental and psychosocial support. Personally, Black women have guided me my entire life, Noel, and I'm sure you could say the same thing. When I think about all the women that I grew up with here in Atlanta and in Seattle, from my mom, my aunt, my godmoms were all very involved. And even my mentors like LaDawn Blackett-Jones, Keanu Hawkins, Amber Willis, Black women around me and supporting, even if they weren't in mathematics at all, is how much that really means for my own success. Noel, what has your experience been like with Black women and mentors? If we're talking about pre-college, like Black women mentors, I had a ton of them because I'm from the Bahamas. There was no shortage. And like I mentioned, I've got a lot of (laughs) teachers in my family. Like my mom was a teacher, one of my grandmothers, and even more like along that line. So there was no shortage. But in college, I can name exactly one, uh, Joanda Grant, who was the head of the Quantitative Reasoning Center at the time not in either department I was doing a major in, but she was the Black woman mentor available to me. And when I got to grad school, there just weren't Black women. Like I was the Black woman. And it wasn't until a year ago that I even found Black women in math to be friends and mentors. Mm -hmm. Like some of them are on the Black and math team. Uh, We've got Candice and Marissa for sure. And Michael, we didn't even meet until 2018. Yeah. And we've been in the same field all these years before then, just now meeting. But it also leaves me wondering what other Black women out there who I have not had the opportunity to engage with and meet specifically in mathematics because we are such a small population as is. So I am, again, very happy that we're doing this Black and Math Week because there's already a larger community just boiling around right now. You know, so far through this podcast for Black and Math Week, We've talked a lot about the barriers that we've seen uh, come in place for Black students in mathematics at all ages. We've talked about the way that our bodies may have been policed in the math classroom, especially when you think about the way that we're assessing how Black students have math knowledge and abilities, but how important it is for us to also have this mentorship and mentorship specifically from people of the same race or same background that we can identify and relate to in different ways, how important that is. And we didn't mention any of Jose's mentors, but know if you've been a mentor, Jose, he sees you and loves you and we love you for loving him. (laughs) Now we're going to play a game that Noelle and I came up with that was a lot of fun to do with our guests on the podcast. And it's called the counter narrative game. So I'm going to, well, me and Noelle are going to present different counter narratives to our guests about black students in mathematics. And to be very clear, We both believe these statements are very false, but we wanted to hear what our guests would give as a counter narrative to show how false these statements are. Think of it like a proof by a contradiction. Yeah, the way I actually presented this to Bria was, how would you respond if someone stood up and asked you this question when you're on a panel or at a workshop or something? And the first statement to counter is someone describing Black students in math as being at risk. Well, my first question would be at risk for what? You know, at risk. Wink. 
The only thing that I think Black students are at risk of is being treated as if they don't belong in this space. I think they're at risk of losing their confidence and at risk of not being seen for all of the, the brilliance that they bring to our institution because some people have negative beliefs about who they are. So I would recommend that we really confront our own thinking about what it means to, to be at risk first and then think about how we can support our Black students. Right. Why would we be talking about being at risk and not talking about how to fix it? Why, why is education so risky? Hmm. Like, who put the risk? Like, who created the gap? There's a, there was a recent study that showed that, like, if this country actually decided to invest in reparations when it was supposed to, then that gap would have been closed already. So anything, when you tell people that folks are at risk, you're basically saying that not only did you destroy the safety net that's supposed to catch them in the ways that, let's say, our white wealthy counterparts have, you're also saying that you're not going to fortify the rope by which they are hanging. Mm. And I do mean that in any number of ways, right? Mm. So <laughs> I hear you. It, it's, uh, it's not only is it unfair, it is systemically oppressive for anyone to say that these kids are at risk. Like that, that just means that our country and our systems have done an awful job and, and probably intentionally to make sure that they were at risk. Right. And if we're not at risk, what we're exceptional right and there we are having to defend ourselves because we're good at something and that's something else we actually brought up in this counter narrative game again yeah so our next statement for our guest was when black students are doing well they are exceptional in math like a unicorn i mean yes we're magical but <laughs> that's such harmful thinking Rhea actually came in with some fire for her response I'll be honest, my initial response is I want to be, I want to say how offended I am that you would believe that about Black children. Girl. Yeah. Girl. <laughs> Girl. Because what we need to do and understand is that being a mathematician and being someone who is successful in mathematics, it's, there's no, there's no one way to learn how to do that. There's no one way to succeed in doing so. People aren't born as exceptional mathematicians, we're supposed to know and believe that. And so if I'm providing students with, or if I'm helping students understand mathematics using a, a variety of methods in doing so, and they're proving success, then why would we not use that with more of our students? Why would we not encourage more students to become successful in mathematics by broadening the way that we teach or broadening the way that they experience mathematics. So instead of saying that, looking at this data and saying that these students are exceptional because of this particular methodology or this particular, um, because they, they just had something, I guess, that, that other students did it, why would we not make that available to all students? You know, that's just like what you were saying earlier, Noel, about students of we know they're at risk and we have ways to fix it, why aren't we just fixing it? If some style of teaching is working to make those Black students perform exceptionally, why not just try it with more students? I mean, there's probably something a little bit uh, political behind this, Michael, right? Mm. Because teaching Black students, as we know, <laughs> is political. 
Some people might not think so, which is why it is the next statement in our counter-narrative game. Like, what do you say if someone says to you, math is not political? Ah, let me get in my bag. I want to focus on the Black experience here, but it applies to all. This is a country in which it was illegal for enslaved people to read and write and do math. So if that is true, which it is, then inherently that means education is political. Okay, I can tell Jose is about to go in on this. Our so-called founding fathers, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, while they stood on different sides of the political spectrum, both believed in a public education. But we also recognize that the vast majority of founding fathers were also slave owners. So if this is also true, which is it is, that means that this country was founded on the idea that, yes, education should be given to everybody, but that if you believe that Black people are human beings, which... <laughs> <laughs> they they are, but to them, not so. You know, this country is already telling people that there's a set of people who do not deserve education. And so that is a political statement. And so at any given moment, when you want to teach Black kids to do math, you are doing a political thing because you are going against the narratives that have been the bedrock of this country. Ooh, man, speak on it. Whose country? <laughs> he is making some points, and he, I know he's about to keep going. As a teacher, because of the beliefs of the Founding Fathers, because of everything that happened since then, including Reconstruction, Civil Rights Movement, and by the way, not just like the 50s and 60s, I mean like the entire thing from 1900s all the way on up to maybe even the 1970s with the Black Power Movement. The idea that you as an educator can go into a classroom that is state-sponsored, where you get your state licensure <laughs> and you are given a set of uh, standards that was approved by the state means that you are an agent of that state. And so you go into a state-sponsored building as a state-sponsored agent with state-sponsored standards, with state-sponsored <laughs> textbooks, that means that you are a political agent. It doesn't mean that you are a partisan, mind you. You could be, uh, and God forbid, you could be a Trump-loving Republican who goes into inner-city schools and believe yourself to be somebody who's trying to do good for black and brown kids. <laughs> Fine, but that is still political. Like, you could be a political atheist. You could be somebody who's libertarian, who doesn't believe in any of the spectrum, You could all that. But the minute you sign that contract and you start collecting money from the state, right, to teach kids, that makes you political. And even if you are in a private school, that means that that private school is on public land, which was given to make sure that that school was built and you still have to go through any number of licensures to become a private school, public school, charter school, whatever, right? That That's a state thing. That is a political statement. Like even just wanting kids to learn, whoever it is, ends up being political, but even more so for black kids because black kids weren't allowed to do so. They weren't allowed to learn as a state law. So that's what I would have to say to that. Imagine thinking any kind of education isn't political when discussions about whether or not Black people are people aren't even that far in the past. I mean, imagine. And this history really keeps coming back to haunt us at this point. Here we are <laughs> again, when we look at particularly 
the schooling of, of Black children in mathematics in particular. I know that for us with desegregation, a lot of things changed. A lot of things actually became worse for Black children because when we were often in our own schools, there was just a lot of there was a, always academic excellence and, and support. And um, I was reading someone's work who talked about how there were there was evidence that we had already been doing at the high school level, algebra, geometry, and, and studying other things that many white communities had not been doing. And so then when we desegregated, it was amazing that while we actually were advanced in mathematics, the perceptions and that bias about what Black students could do, they, they still started to put us off in, in other courses and in lower level classes. And so we are essentially, we're, we're seeing the fruit of a lot of political decisions. So if mathematics isn't political for any other reason, we're seeing the fruit of political decisions from the last 60 and well, last 400 years, if we want to be honest. Um. <laughs> so I want to do a quick shout out about EduColor, which is a organization founded by Jose Wilson. So EduColor mobilizes advocates nationwide around issues of educational equity, agency, and justice. They amplify the works and ideas of students, educators, and communities of color through supportive on and offline networks and professional development. So what, what we found with EduColor is like, we not only have to think about the policy side and not only the pedagogy side, but then how those two come together in order to create a more human experience for so many of our children, because so many of our school systems are doubling down on the idea that our Black kids don't deserve, for example, to have a full set of of learnings that they don't deserve art, they don't deserve music, they don't deserve dance. And then when they do, they only deserve the types of things that, you know, will allow them into like the the, the white hemisphere, right? So, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, we're going to make sure that these kids get this sort of learning, but this learning that they're doing already in the streets, that they're doing at their own homes, it's not that valid mm-hmm. because it's not going to get them into the white spaces. It's not going to bolster their resumes. It's not going to do all the things that like are white validating or whatever have you. So, we have a whole 12 years of schooling that consistently reinforces white norms on black kids instead of trying to find ways to get uh, black learning into into the spaces and making sure that their learnings come into the things that we're trying to do as adults. So it's a whole reframing and EduColor hopes to be in the forefront of making sure that happens. You know, he's bringing up a great point about decentering whiteness in our education. What would it be like to just talk about what kind of math education would be great for us, by us? Boo-boo. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm happy to tell you, though. There is a genre that already exists for that known as Afrofuturism. Afrofuturism is where we can look at our historical realities as Black people and imagine where we can go based on our strengths and not just the negative parts of the injustice that have been done to us in America and beyond, but to say, hey, we can actually do way more than what the history books have tried to describe our lives as. So our last question for Jose and Brio was, imagine you're writing your own Afrofuturistic stories. And it's set 50 years from today, 2070, and it's about a Black main character. What does their perfect math experience look like in your story? Considering everything that's going on right now in our world, even with COVID and virtual education, 
50 years from now, what would be the best situation for a Black student in math? I think one of the first things is a shift in the focus that we have on, on testing in schools. I think the testing focus has really driven, um, which is a big policy, it has driven a lot of, of how classrooms are structured and how students are move through mathematics and how teachers teach mathematics. So I, I think the individualized learning for mathematics, well, for well, most subjects, but particularly for mathematics is really, it could be liberating for a lot of students. And that's not something that's really widely acceptable. I, you could be using technology to do that right now. But I think in the next 50 years, if we could figure out how to just stop teaching to whole groups of, of students and start looking at students as, as individuals, I think that's one way to rehumanize mathematics. A lot of people are able to identify patterns that exist in this world and are willing to explore and investigate. And if we could nurture more of that through mathematics consistently through K-12 and, and the college level, then uh, yeah, you'd see more little girls, more little Bria in the wells that <laughs> just, just gravitate towards it and don't see it just as a means to an end or something that they need in order to get into college or get into grad school or to get into a particular career. So I think if, if we can, yeah, we've, we have to, we have to liberate mathematics. We have to liberate mathematics. And I, I, I want to say that there's some people who are doing good work in those areas already. It's, it's just not widespread or as widespread as it needs to be. And I think that, that the policy, the testing in particular, is probably one of the greatest hindrances towards that. I know that there are teachers who really do believe in children and there are people that are, are doing some, some good things, but they often feel hindered by many of the things that they're required to do. And if some of those barriers didn't exist, then I think we'd see some more inventive mathematics. And a lot of this inventive mathematics that Bria is referring to and imagining, I'm sure has also already happened within a lot of the math in African culture, in broader Black culture that we may have just not have any access to. And imagine if we could tap into those, to all of those like whales of knowledge in mathematics and were to take it into our futures. I mean, Black and brown people have been doing math for forever, right? I just, I feel like we could run a whole class on math that white people stole. Girl, a whole university. But we could also have a whole university about all the mathematics that we could learn from other cultures, especially from the continent of Africa and all the countries that are on that land. And Jose actually has a lot more he can say on that. There is a whole continent of Africa that had already conceptualized things around calendars and angles and structures and geometries that you know, a lot of folks did not appreciate. And so in in my mind, it would be no longer dangerous to say things like, my people had a way of doing this that was more efficient and more responsive to their environment. So thinking about how so many libraries <laughs> and so many structures have been burned down, right? Like that's Like that's what you're kind of like, you know, highlighting for me is that we, we have to reckon with 
that which already happened, right? Mm-hmm. And then starting from this point on, I would love, for example, for black be- black students specifically to say, you know, like, we're going to work with this two plus two equals four. We can try to agree on that. But then where that takes me in my journey towards full fulfillment doesn't necessarily have to be the same thing that you want to do, but it does have to be responsive to the things that I want to reach and how I want to reach them. That's the different praxis, just straight up than what we have now. And then that teachers would ultimately be able to learn how to play with the power dynamics that are often in the classroom, mm-hmm. highlighting folks like Paulo Freire, which by the way, like it's it love the work. It's not new work. Mm-hmm. Like every teacher's a student, every student's a teacher. There's always a thing that we can learn back and forth, right? Like the Bible teaches you that, doesn't it? And that is all the time we have for this episode of Relatively Prime. We need to thank Jose and Bria for speaking with us and the National Math Festival for sponsoring this episode. This takeover of Relatively Prime is a part of Black in Math Week. You can find us and updates on Twitter at Black in Math. We would also like to thank Krish Music for the use of their music in this episode. You can find them on SoundCloud or in the show notes at relprime.com. We also really need to thank Relatively Prime's patrons on Patreon. Without y'all, the show would not exist. If you want to and are able to contribute, you can head over to patreon.com slash Prime to pledge a little bit per episode. Though if you are not able to, that is totally fine. Just listening is more than enough. If you want to learn more about the intersection of Afrofuturism and mathematics education, check out Spacebox from Stimulation Escape Room. It's an immersive escape room experience where you have to help six Black astronauts who have fallen ill in space. You can learn more at stimulationescaperoom.org. Finally, Rail Prime is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike license. So if you decide to reuse it, you have to license it in the same way. Otherwise, have some fun. Thank you all so much for listening. And as always, and please know, Samuel is making us say this. Have a matherific month, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Matherific. 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 This is a matherific time. Oh, all of that is staying in. (laughs) Perfect. Yes.